0: Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and ahead we will look inside Wild Health, a Kentucky company that rose to prominence during the COVID pandemic. Our Kristen Kennedy has that report a little bit later. But first, as COVID numbers are improving, and it's obvious they are at this point, there is hope again that the COVID pandemic is about to be a smaller part of our lives. But the more than 13,000 deaths so far in Kentucky and fallout, including health care workers leaving their jobs, are sobering reminders of what we've been dealing with. And the pandemic revealed other challenges for health care, strained hospitals, hard hit nursing homes that had to make major changes, and a tremendous mental health toll that is slowly being revealed. Today, representatives from mental health, hospitals, and nursing homes joining us. As we continue to look at some of the issues being debated in the General Assembly, they also have concerns about ambulance services in the state. And the claim that people are often have agonizing long waits to be transferred in non emergency situations A lot to discuss today with mental health advocate Sheila Schuster representing nursing homes, Betsy Johnson of the Kentucky Association of Healthcare Facilities and Nancy Galvani of the Kentucky Hospital Association. A welcome to all. We appreciate very much you coming in. They're all appearing with us remotely uh, with very busy schedules and we appreciate that. Betsy, it's been a long two years in in dealing with the the pandemic. Uh, Nursing homes uh, were hit uh, really hard and early and had to close to visitors. That was a hardship for residents and their families. Uh, What did we become aware of during that time in terms of uh, staffing and resident needs that uh, are now being improved and can be improved going forward?
1: Uh, exactly. First, thank you for having us um, speak on this important matter. And, and looking at my um, colleagues, Sheila Schuster and Nancy Galvani, I, I realized that um, the impact of COVID on school nursing facilities touches their areas as well. I mean, our staff, um, were under a lot of stress um, beginning in March of 2020 when the, the federal and state rules that govern nursing homes changed uh, daily sometimes. They were having to wear PPE um, when they didn't normally do that in that setting. Um, and then, of course, as, as you mentioned, um, Uh, we were on lockdown, so no family visitors were there. And so our our direct caregivers had to take on that role as well, which is a a great um, emotional and mental um, stress on them. So, um, you know, I think that we're all very um, happy that the COVID-19 numbers are going down, but to tell you the truth, we've forever been changed by COVID-19. We've had a record number of staff leave the long-term care profession. Um, the cost of doing business and caring for our residents has skyrocketed due to, um, as I mentioned, the increased use of PPE. Um, of course, the uh, the, the staffing um, salary wage war, if you will, and trying to compete with um, staffing agencies who who are uh, sometimes charging up to three to four times uh, additional costs. And they did pre-pandemic to, to uh, contract workers to our skilled nursing facilities. Um, So those are the issues that we're looking at now where um, the landscape is completely changed and what we can do to support our direct care workers and, of course, our our residents in long-term care.
0: NANCY, HOSPITALS WERE PUSHED TO THE BRINK, Uh, PATIENTS uh, WERE BEING SEEN IN HALLWAYS, Uh, WE KNOW YOU STRUGGLED WITH WELL PUBLICIZED uh, STAFFING SHORTAGES, Uh, THE GOVERNOR DECLARED A STATE OF EMERGENCY ON THE NURSING nursing SHORTAGE, AND THE LEGISLATURE IS CONSIDERING SOME CHANGES THAT WOULD HELP WITH STAFFING, Uh, HOW BADLY IS THAT NEEDED?
2: Uh, IT'S VERY CRITICAL, Um, OUR HOSPITALS SHARE THE SAME ISSUES AS BETSY HAS POINTED OUT. Very importantly, the shutdown of the elective procedures was very hurtful to our hospitals. You know, we were shutting down thinking there was going to be a a flood of uh, COVID patients. That didn't actually happen until a little bit later in Kentucky. But uh, that lost revenue, we're still suffering for that. Um, You know, we incurred all the costs to retrofit our facilities. As Betsy said, PPE, you know, the cost has just gone way up. Uh, We do have labor shortages. And so, you know, there's a lot more losses than federal aid has covered. Oh that's my and question. So we're really you concerned ha- about that.
0: So you have not been made whole by the, the, the federal dollars that have that have come in?
2: Not at all. We did a study of just twenty twenty. Um, And the hospitals, when you looked at the loss revenue, plus all the costs associated with COVID, it was about a 2.6 billion with the B loss, of which a billion of that was not covered by the federal aid. And then of course COVID didn't end at the end of 2020. Uh, There was a lot of additional costs in 2021 with the rollout of the vaccine. And then, you know, the labor shortages really hit us with, you know, we had the Delta variant, then we had the Omicron variant. Um, and, you know, to be honest, uh, our staff was is just exhausted and, you know, they're still very exhausted. And so we've seen record retirements, people that, you know, might not have retired for a while, but, you know, they got out. We have uh, other people that said, you know, this profession isn't for me. And so all of that has compounded, you know, the issue And while the numbers are going down, there's still a lot of COVID patients in hospitals. Now they're not in the ICU, not as much on ventilators, but um, it's still, you know, a lot of pressure for our staff.
0: How do you get young people interested in and geared toward healthcare jobs? And will this legislation uh, that is being considered in Frankfurt uh, make a difference in that regard?
2: I mean, I think it definitely will because we have to look at how to grow uh, the numbers of graduates. And uh, this Senate Bill 10 that just came out of committee yesterday, I think will be a great help because it's going to allow some of the nursing programs in the state that have good pass rates on the exam to be able to add additional slots, uh, you know, um, for students to ta- be able to take more students. Actually, there, there is um, a, a fair number of interest, but sometimes, you know, the programs because of lack of faculty or you know what have you, or they have to get permission from the Board of Nursing to expand their enrollment. So that's kind of been a barrier. And so that's one of the things that Senate Bill 10 will help with. But you know, we also need to, I think, work with our high school students and let them know that nursing is a wonderful career. Of course, uh, the pay is much higher than it was in the past. So it can be you know, very gratifying.
0: And Sheila, to you, what a time this has been and how it has forced mental health into the spotlight. Uh, what was revealed about the, the gaps in mental health care as we have navigated through this pandemic? And how much to some extent have we all become more aware uh, that uh, that everyone is vulnerable in, a, in, in times like these?
3: It's a great question, Bill. I've, uh, I'm a licensed psychologist. I've been... Um, was in practice for 27 years in uh, Louisville with children and uh, was still doing some advocacy work in Frankfurt, which I've done full time since 2000. And there has never been more discussion about mental health, which is really a good thing because mental health has suffered so from stigma, from people being scared of it, from people um, not thinking that it's going to affect them. And suddenly it's right there in their homes with their kids, with themselves um, the uh, pandemic created uh, what a friend of mine called the, the trifecta of anxiety and depression. Uh, it was a, a time period where uh, there were uh, unknown consequences, but all of them looked at. Um, there was uh, an unknown time period. How many times have we thought that we were out of this, only to find out that we're back in it and maybe even with higher numbers? And finally, for all of us, that loss of control is so devastating. So what we've seen is um, depression and anxiety. We've had increased numbers of calls to the National Suicide Prevention Line, to the uh, mental health centers, crisis lines. We've had people that are early in their recovery, unfortunately not getting the supports that they need to stay in recovery. We've had unfortunately uh, higher incidences of uh, child abuse, of uh, interpersonal uh, domestic violence, and all of these have brought mental health to the forefront.
0: Do you suspect so, that, that people are, are getting the, the help they need at this point? Or uh, is this an ongoing issue, whether it's a stigma that's holding people back or access to, uh, to mental health care?
3: It's a little bit of both. Um, with the help of the legislature last session, we passed a very good telehealth bill uh, that made services available uh, via even um, smartphones or iPhones um, keep people connected. And a lot, a lot of people have access services through that. We have the same kind of uh, shortages in some ways that uh, Nancy's talking about and Betsy's talking about, both with our mental health professionals, but uh, also with our frontline providers who are providing services for folks with developmental and intellectual disabilities and are there like the nursing home folks or like some of the hospital workers day after day, Bill, doing very difficult work and finding out that they can go to uh, Walmart and make more money per hour, uh, less yeah. stress. So um, I think the word is out um, that mental health services are available, uh, the community mental health centers uh, and all of our um, what we call behavioral health service organizations and uh, other drug treatment facilities have um, reached out They're available with longer hours. They're available through telehealth. I think we're making more different kinds of services available, family therapy and group therapy. And hopefully with kids back in school, we can build our our, um, workforce of school mental health professionals to provide those services where the kids need them as well.
0: Well, as you we mentioned, a lot of uh, issues have been highlighted uh, during this uh, period in history. And here's a little long-term history on ambulance services in Kentucky. They were primarily provided by funeral homes in much of rural Kentucky until about 40 years ago. Larger cities had fire departments or private EMS services. And as the requirements increased, many headed in the direction of ambulance districts, supported by local taxes. Uh, all of you, as I understand it, are in support of House Bill 505, which is uh, coming up in the legislature soon, if not this week, it would affect uh, ambulances uh, services in the state, make it possible for more services to be licensed. Kentucky is one of only two states that requires a certificate of need for an ambulance service. Uh, we know there are many who have dealt with long-term waits. We know there is also opposition to this bill. Uh, how would this uh, particular bill help, in your view?
1: I'll go. I'll go first. Go so, you know, Bill, you mentioned spotlight. You know, spotlight on mental health services. I think, I think the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, put a spotlight on some of the cracks in our healthcare system. Um, I, I know, uh, you know, we have learned a lot in the last two years. Um, so, ambulance services have been an issue that our association. We've been dealing with these issues pre-pandemic. Um, stories I was I was hearing from my membership. Um, before 2020 was that um, for especially non-emergency transport. So if somebody's in one of Nancy's hospitals and you know, recovering from a uh, knee surgery or, 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 or whatever and needs some short-term re- rehabilitation at a skilled nursing facility, um, sometimes those uh, uh, patients uh, would, not, would not be picked up till late in the evening, like 10 o'clock at night. Um, and when that happens, first of all, you're dealing with a... a um, an elder, an older individual who uh, has you know, complex um, uh, medical needs, but also has probably is uh, taking a lot of prescriptions. And so when you transport them late at night, a lot of times their prescriptions were not going uh, with them. They were waiting a long time in the hospital to be picked up. Um, there's all kinds of issues with that. And, and now we've learned that during the pandemic, it's gotten worse. Uh, we've heard about people being left at dialysis centers and not being picked up. Um, you know, ambulance, uh, uh, request for ambulance for non-emergency, they say they're gonna show up and they never show up. And we, um, like Sheila and Nancy, we serve a very vulnerable population, and these people need healthcare immediately. And um, I, I believe we've been working with the hospital, I mean, the ambulances and the hospital association on these issues. Pre pandemic during the pandemic, and, and now we got to the point that we need some legislative change to, to
0: fix the problem. And Nancy, you're noticing that issue as well when there's uh, transfers uh, between uh, facilities.
2: Yes, uh, absolutely, and I, I agree with Betsy. This issue has been around for a while, but it has uh, gotten uh, to um, escalate quite a bit in the last two years to the point where um, I was getting so many calls about we need help and our patients aren't getting what they need that's the bottom line we're concerned about the patient getting the care they need in a timely manner we put together a task force with different with the uh, board that regulates the ambulances the ambulance uh, trade association uh, ambulance providers uh, betsy's organization to really study the issue and we ask our hospitals to track for a month when um, now, now hospitals, when they're moving a patient, they're calling and they're getting a bed. They're calling, you know, from a rural hospital to a tertiary hospital, like in our urban centers. Um, you know, we need to move this heart attack patient. You know, do you have a bed? And and at the point that they are accepted, then we are we arrange for transport. So the hospitals are tracking how long it was taking and how many ambulance services they had to call. In order to move these patients. So these are not non emergency patients. These are very sick individuals. These are people that are having massive heart attacks, strokes, have been burned, uh, trauma, pediatric seizures, you know, things of that nature uh, where they need to go quickly. And uh, what our hospitals found, what we found through this survey of hospitals tracking these wait times, the average was seven to eight hours. And so, you know, most people have heard of the golden hour. The bottom line is when you have these serious illnesses, time is of the essence. You know, it's important to get people into that right level of care as soon as possible because that affects the outcome. And uh, And unfortunately we've had people die waiting for the ambulance to come. And so because of that, and we're not trying to lay blame on the ambulances, and, and nor are we trying to say that 911 comes in front of this it, it, because it obviously it doesn't. But um, if the if existing providers don't have the capacity to be able to make these uh, transports then something has to change and we need to be able to allow additional capacity to be developed and that's really all we're saying
0: let me put this out there and sheila you you, you may want to answer it you know, obviously in a mental health crisis again uh, urgency sometimes is very important but uh, many existing ambulance services and the boards that run them, those local boards, say they do a good job. Uh, th- they also depend on the money from those non-emergency transfers to help offset their 911 emergency services. Uh, could this open the door to so much competition that uh, that nobody would really be uh, solvent?
3: I don't know, Bill, but I do know that uh, in the behavioral health world, we've been hearing these stories back 2017, 2018. I chaired the Behavioral Health Technical Advisory um, Committee for the for Medicaid, and we were hearing these stories. And you asked about stigma earlier, and I would hate to think that our ambulance drivers have um, negative feelings about people with uh, mental health crises. But the things that we were hearing, for instance, a person would go to the emergency room of their local hospital in an, uh, a mental health crisis, a suicidal crisis. And they would be evaluated by the local community mental health center, and they were said, yes, I want to go and get hospital treatment, but I need to get to a hospital that has a psychiatric unit. So they would call an ambulance, and an ambulance would arrive, and the driver would say, no, we don't, have to, we don't have to transport those crazy people. We don't have to drive people with mental illness in our ambulances. And we heard those not from just one person, we heard those from across the state. So we went to the Medicaid commissioner at the time and said, "You know, what can be done about this? And the Medicaid commissioner at that time said, well, I'll talk to the ambulance providers, And but we continued to hear the story. So quite frankly, Bill, I was delighted, not that hospitals and nursing homes were having the same problem, but that there, we could join forces, if you will, and say, this is a problem that needs to get
0: fixed. Well, across certainly, the state. certainly training is part of that. And I know the, 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 the boards that do that, the Kentucky Board of Emergency Medical Services provides training and continuing education and they'll be heard as well. And you will as well uh, in that hearing that uh, will be coming up on this uh, House Bill 505. So that's interesting and an interesting discussion with all of you. And I appreciate you uh, very much uh, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. We
3: sure appreciate
0: it. And stay with us. We'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. COVID testing has been an important part of the state's fight against the virus and for the past two years. Wild Health has handled a majority of Kentucky's COVID tests. WKYT's Kristen Kennedy got exclusive access to Wild Health's lab and she talked with the men and women who are working around the clock to get the results out fast.
4: THIS SINGLE LAB WITH ITS DOZEN WORKERS SORTING THROUGH HUNDREDS OF VIALS ISN'T RUNNING A VARIETY OF TESTS, THEY'RE
5: JUST RUNNING ONE. All COVID, all the time here.
4: This is Wild Health's one and only testing laboratory. Their machines can handle more than 1,000 tests at a time. And lately, the number positive for SARS CoV 2 or COVID has been the highest it's ever been.
5: We run 100 samples to see 40 positives. It is a lot.
4: Wild Health's tests won't confirm specific variants, but they do know the latest. Omicron has come with the biggest rise in rates.
5: Even Delta was only about 15 or 16 percent. Uh, this strain is particularly contagious, plus um, in the fact that we're in during basically winter, so people are more indoors, air is drier, easier to infect the upper respiratory pathway.
4: Dr. A. Taylor Bright, Wild Health's lab director, predicted
5: this surge. He's also predicting the next. We had predicted Monday of Thanksgiving through about mid-January would be a surge. We didn't predict Omicron, but we had predicted we would have a surge. Uh, So we would expect this to tail out this week there this month, mid February, and then April have another uptick. Um, And that's based on vaccination status.
4: He and his technicians know the more positives, the more patients in the hospital.
5: We see testing up. We know that hospitalizations will follow in two to three weeks, Um, and so that that can be disheartening. But I think the best part is that we are getting people the results that they need.
4: To get those results, he and his team work seven days a week, sometimes 12 hour days. Each day starts with samples. Hundreds of vials are delivered around the clock. Each vial has a barcode and each barcode contains its patient's contact information. Check-in takes a few clicks. Preparation for testing takes a few steps. And once the samples are in the machine, it takes a few hours for the computers to read and register results.
5: My job mainly is moving small quantities of of liquid around, right? We're talking about one to 5% of a milliliter. So like minuscule amounts is all we really need because these machines are so sensitive. We can detect down to uh, 10 copies of virus um, in your nose.
4: In surges, Dr. Bright can run these machines all night. They usually test up to 8000 samples a day.
5: But these are all remote so we can log in and we're all doing data up until 12 30 1 o'clock every night, getting data out so that, you know, people have the results. The schools can open in the morning, people know what they what you know what they need to do to go to work.
4: Wild Health Small Lexington Lab handles every sample they get. In Lexington, Kristen Kennedy, WKYT.
0: And still ahead on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers, President Biden says he plans to appoint an African-American woman to the Supreme Court. Why, some judges in Central Kentucky say that is long overdue. It's on the way on Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers as President Biden prepares to deliver on his promise to nominate the first black woman to the US Supreme Court. Some local judges are sharing their thoughts about that potentially historic move. WKYT's Chelsea Jones spoke with three women who are serving as judges in Fayette County on what the nomination could mean for the country. <laughs>
6: When President Joe Biden said he would nominate a black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court, these women were thrilled.
5: There's not a different class, a
6: different 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 test. Denotra sproul Gunther, Melissa Moore Murphy, and Pamela Goodwine, all judges here in Fayette County, feel the move is long overdue.
4: Because it's been 150 years since the first black woman graduated from law school, and it's been 94 years before there was a first black judge.
6: There have been 115 U.S. Supreme Court justices, only five have been women, and only three have been people of color. It's the first time Fayette County has seen three black women sitting on the bench at the same time. Counsel, where, where do we stand? In 1999, Goodwine became the first black woman to join the local judiciary. Murphy joined her in 2020 and Gunther in 2021 because had there not been any guns in the hands of these 16 year olds and 15 year olds,
1: Antonio Franklin would still be with us today.
6: Goodwine had sights on wearing a black robe as a young girl. Inspired by Supreme Court Justices Thurgood Marshall and Sandra Day O'Connor, she hoped to sit on the highest court one day. She submitted her application to the Obama administration, but didn't become his Supreme Court nominee. She since focused her attention elsewhere.
1: So I set my eyes on the Kentucky Supreme Court and do plan to become the first African-American Uh,
4: to sit
6: on that court. These women hope their careers will inspire the next generation of female judges, letting little girls who look like them know that they too can achieve. It hasn't been an easy road for these women. We take the
2: same tests. We go through the same classes. Uh, The bar exam is not for the faint of heart. We're doing the same work, and and more importantly, we have to be overqualified most of the time to get recognized.
6: The judges say they've dealt with discrimination despite their list of degrees and credentials.
2: There was always times that nobody thought that I could possibly be the prosecutor. Um, I, I was always either the social
5: worker or the victim's advocate.
6: When Goodwine decided to run for circuit court, The only judge to support her was Gary Payne, the first black judge in Fayette County.
1: The comments were, we don't know if she's ready. We don't know if she has what it takes. Well, why not? Because I had
6: every bit of experience that they did. Biden says he's done a deep dive on four Supreme Court candidates.
5: Uh Um, They're looking for individuals that went to uh, typically elite law schools, uh, most likely on the federal bench experience.
6: University of Kentucky political science professor Justin Witteking says Biden's pick could help him in the midterms.
5: Yes, I think uh, certainly uh, President Biden is looking for anything right now to help boost his approval ratings.
6: President Biden said he would name the nominee by the end of February and Senate Democrats are hoping for a quick confirmation. Since Biden's pick won't change the ideological balance of the court, King doubts the confirmation process will be contentious. But he says there's still likely to be pushback. Some lawmakers have called Biden's pledge to nominate a Black woman, affirmative action, and identity politics. But for these judges, those comments are merely distractions.
4: And I guarantee you that 99 out of 100 times her resume will certainly exceed. The expectations
6: they say Biden's nomination is a step towards progress. If they could speak to the nominee, they would say this.
2: You may be the first, but you won't be the
6: last. In Lexington, Chelsea Jones, WKYT.
0: And President Biden has said the nomination is still a top priority even as the U.S. is taking steps to impose strict sanctions against Russia after the country's invasion of Ukraine. That's Kentucky Newsmakers. We thank you very much for joining us and we certainly hope you make it a good week ahead.